Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Murders happen all around the world, and this week's episode takes us across the pond to the United Kingdom. I find stories with a twist compelling, and this one certainly has a few. Hilda and Horace lived in West Bromwich in England, where they owned a metal polishing shop in the jewelry quarter. Their son, Barry, who was 34, was living with them and working at the foundry. He loved his green Ford Capri and his numerous handguns, but he hated noise, any kind of noise. For years, his anger towards his noisy neighbors grew. It boiled just under the surface. They spoke too loud. They had too many visitors. Their TV was deafening. Their music was ear-piercing. Their cars were too noisy. Barry was obsessed with noise. The sounds in his head were torturing him, but only he could hear them. In 1977, Barry wanted to join the King's Heath Gun Club in Birmingham. They had a policy that new members were only accepted if they'd been recommended by another member. But Barry had managed to get a recommendation from the police, and with that, they allowed him to join. A former member who wished to remain anonymous out of fear of retaliation from Barry told the Birmingham Mail that they soon regretted their decision. They noticed he was rather odd and liked to dress like the TV detectives on Starsky and Hutch with his black leather bomber jacket, short sleeve shirt tucked in neatly, and a gun holster securely fastened to his left shoulder so that he could quickly release his gun with his right hand. A member offered to show him the ropes, and the process was clear. You check your weapon, fire one shot, and put it down, and repeat this process each time for every bullet. But Barry didn't follow the process. Instead, he fired off every bullet in his clip within six seconds. Then members noticed that he wasn't firing all of his shots. He'd pretend to, but instead he pocketed the unfired bullets. When the members raised their concerns, they were told to stop picking on him. Barry moved on to the Telford Club, where he demanded that their moving targets be more lifelike and wear wigs. Members had nicknamed him the Cowboy. His behavior had become erratic. Then they discovered how dangerous he really was. He'd made changes to his bullets to increase their power, and the club banned him. What no one knew then was that Barry was stockpiling the bullets he stole. Barry couldn't stand the unbearable noise coming from his neighbor's house, so he pounded on their door. And when 20-year-old Philip Burkick answered and asked Barry what he was going to do about it, he replied, I'm going to exterminate you. What no one knew is Barry had reached his breaking point. For years, he had been forced to put up with the noise coming from his neighbors, and he was convinced they were laughing at him. 
the noises in his head and their taunting laughter wouldn't stop. On the evening of Thursday, October 26, 1978, Barry was home sitting at the kitchen table cleaning his guns. His neighbors, the Burkitts, were in their driveway working on Philip's Spitfire. The noise was bouncing around inside Barry's head, making him angry. And at 7.10 p.m., he snapped. He grabbed two handguns and stormed out of the house. He fired at Philip's father, George, and hit him just above his left eye. He fell, and Barry pumped more bullets into his chest and side. Then he turned the gun on Philip and pulled the trigger. Jill's interview in the Express and Star details the terrifying events. Her and her mom Iris had just enjoyed evening tea and were sitting in the living room. Jill, at 17 years old, was busy with college homework. Her father was helping her brother work on his car in the driveway. Suddenly, her brother burst into the living room, clutching his arm, his eyes wide, his face in shock, as he told her that Barry had just shot him and his dad. Jill tried to let out a scream as she ran for the front door with her mom right behind her. They were trying to get to her father. But Barry had entered the house through the back door and shot Jill in the back, stopping her instantly. She had only made it to the doorway. Her body turned and he shot her again, this time in her side. He continued to shoot four more times in her lower body, an arm, and a leg. He fired a total of eight shots into her body. Her mother had been shot too. Jill laid on the floor bleeding and unable to move. She could hear her mother gasping for breath and hear her breathing getting more and more faint until it was no more. Jill had to get help and fought to stay conscious. She was unable to stand, so she crawled and made it to just outside the doorway. Then in the darkness, she heard more shots. The front window shattered and her brother came crashing through. He had been shot four more times. His body landed beside her, motionless. She passed out for a short time, and when she came to, she struggled to move. Slowly, she managed to reach the driveway, still trying to get to her father. But an ambulance had already arrived, but only had room for one and had taken her father. She remembers a crowd had gathered at the end of the driveway, and someone told her another ambulance was on its way. Jill had serious injuries and had lost a lot of blood. Later, she credited the doctors for saving her life. Barry had used his 9mm to wildly fire off 23 shots. His violence on the Burkett family had taken less than five minutes. Iris's cousin Judy Chambers was watching TV with her husband Joe when they heard the loud bangs. Joe got up and looked out the window and calmly said, Barry had shot the Burkitts. Judy got up and opened the front door and saw him pumping bullets into George and Philip. He then looked up and spotted Judy. He pointed the gun at her and pulled the trigger. The first bullet spun her around. She said it was like being hit with a red-hot sledgehammer. Then the second bullet hit. Before she even felt it, she was thrown off her feet. One bullet passed through her lung and liver and out through her back. 
The second bullet struck her left arm and went through her shoulder. Barry jumped into his green capri and roared down the street, hurling his makeshift bombs out the window while still firing his guns. He aimed at two young boys playing football, then a woman. He narrowly missed all three. He fired through the window of a barber shop. The bullet missed a young girl, but she was hit with flying shards of broken glass. He'd fired off another 22 shots randomly at people and houses. Luckily, he wasn't great at making bombs, and they didn't explode. Barry drove off towards Nuneaton. At the Total Garage gas station convenience store, Mike DeMaria and his wife Lisa were working. Lisa had just grabbed a thermos of coffee from their home nearby and had arrived at the gas station when Barry pulled up in his capri. He got out with a gun in his hand, and as the other drivers watched in horror, he chased Mike and Lisa as they fled to the cashier's office. Mike slammed the door in his face, but that didn't stop Barry. He shot through the glass panel in the door. Mike and Lisa were covered in a hail of bullets. Lisa died instantly. Mike was taken to the hospital, but later died from his bullet wounds. Barry had shot five dead and injured five more in his murderous rampage. He sped off again in his green capri, and police followed, doing 80 miles per hour across hills and the winding roads to the Derbyshire Moors in North England. Over two hours, they traveled 100 miles. Then they lost him. Sightings were reported throughout the night, and at 10.30 a.m., a police car spotted Barry and his car and took after him. It was soon joined by another police car, and together, they chased the killer at high speeds for 30 miles. In Buxton, near Manchester, Barry drove into a busy dead-end street lined with tall brick buildings and quaint shops. He crashed his car into three parked cars in front of a theater, where just a few feet away, a hundred young children were gathered on the sidewalk to see the movie Grease. Children and adults started running. A police car came up from behind and rammed the driver's side. The car chase was over, but not the pursuit for Barry. He jumped out of the car with a gun in one hand, yelling at police, Back off or I'll shoot. He jumped up on the hood of the police car and pointed his gun at the officer sitting inside. The other officers dived for cover behind their car. Barry tried to get into the empty police car's driver's seat, but an officer jumped on him and managed to get hold of his hand, pin it in between the seats with the gun pointed up in the air. The second officer came up behind him and wrenched the gun from his hand. They held on to him and the gun until 30 more police officers arrived. It took six officers to drag him out of the police car. They'd managed to get him out without a single bullet being fired. The Glasgow Herald reported that in the killer's car, police found 147 live 9mm bullets, 700 cartridges, and another gun, a 22 with a fully loaded magazine. On his way to the police station, Barry told police, You don't understand. You would have shot them if you'd been me. They were not human beings. They were just things. I kept telling them to shut up, but they made my life hell for four years. He goes on to ask them, Why didn't you kill me? I was hoping to die. I wish I had. 
It had been like a dream. I realized how daft it was now. It is too late. I just couldn't take any more. When I did it, I felt better. He told another officer later that he threw some bombs about only little things to make a bang. I thought everyone would think I was very dangerous and they would shoot me on sight. Why didn't you shoot me? That was the reason I came to Derbyshire. I know they shoot dangerous men in Derbyshire. In the daylight, police officers formed a human line the width of the street and walked shoulder to shoulder looking downward for gun shell casings or any piece of potential evidence while other officers scoured the sidewalks, driveways, and flower beds. A haunting photo depicts five undertakers dressed in dark suits and trench coats, placing flower arrangements on the front lawn of the Burkitt's home for George, Iris, and their son Philip. Flowers sealed in clear plastic bags tied with ribbon, wreaths, and a large cross outlined in white flowers with a card sitting gently on top. Psychiatric expert diagnosed Barry as being in an active paranoid psychosis. He was charged with five counts of murder. In March 1979, he pled not guilty to the murder charges and instead pled guilty to manslaughter of his victims on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He was sentenced indefinitely to Broadmoor, a secure hospital, and was prescribed antipsychotic drugs for schizophrenia. Then... In a shocking twist no one expected, 15 years after the murders, Barry was deemed safe to be returned to the community and went to live in a hostel for ex-offenders within six miles of where he'd gone on his murder spree to exterminate his innocent neighbors. Jill Burkert received a phone call from her aunt saying the press had contacted her about his release. She said her blood ran cold as she feared he would find her and kill her. The public found out and were outraged. He was then moved to North Wales, and afterwards he moved several more times, including Shropshire, Kidderminster, and Birmingham. At some point, Barry Williams changed his name. By the time he moved to Birmingham, he was Harry Street. In 1996, he met Beverly, and after sharing his past with her, they got married and soon after had a daughter. In 2003, Judy Chambers, who survived Barry's attack, said one of my fears is that one day he will decide to come back to Birmingham and finish the job off. If he ever got his hands on another gun, I dread to think what the consequences might be. Someday, someone will be sorry that Barry was let out. Harry, his wife and daughter, moved to Hall Green in Birmingham in 2005. Then, four years later, Harry's obsession with noise returned. He began torturing his new neighbors, Warren and his wife, Cherie. He threw things in their garden and garbage on their sunroom glass roof to attract the birds. One afternoon in 2010, when they were having a garden party, Harry menacingly told Warren, You don't know who I am. Then disturbingly, he drilled a hole in an adjoining wall and inserted a metal rod and hammered it against the brick to keep them awake night after night. Harry called police numerous times to complain about his noisy neighbors, their loud parties and garbage that they were throwing into his yard. 
Police would respond, but their investigation always turned out the same thing. The neighbors weren't doing any of the things he'd accused them of, and his complaints were completely fabricated. Eventually, police stopped responding to Barry's complaints. In July 2013, Warren and Cherie couldn't take Harry's violent behavior anymore. They sold their house at a 25,000 pound loss and moved out. They thought they'd never see him again, but they were wrong. For three months, he scoured the streets looking for their car. Then he spotted it. The Birmingham Mail described what happened next. Harry approached Warren and, snarling like a dog, told him, I have found you. I know where you live. You did not know I could find you. Tell your friend who has moved in to stop banging on the walls. Four days later, on October 14, 2013, police arrested Harry at his home for harassing Warren and Cherie. It was just days before the killer's 35th anniversary of his first murder spree. Police entered his home, and in the lounge behind the sofa, they spotted a door. It led to a cupboard where they found six guns and an explosive device. Harry had been spending time inside this cupboard making homemade bullets. Police cordoned off 150 feet in all directions surrounding his house. Eighteen neighboring houses were evacuated for 13 hours while the bomb disposal experts attended the house. One local police officer decided to dig deeper into Harry Street and who he really was, and their determination paid off when they discovered that his true identity was Barry Williams. On October 18th, he appeared in court to face ten charges. Three counts of harassment, possession of a firearm with intent to endanger life, two counts of possession of a prohibited weapon, possession of firearms with prohibited components, possession of an item capable of being made into a firearm, possession of a controlled explosive, and possession of an intimidation firearm with intent to cause fear or violence. Barry admitted to throwing items on Warren and Cherie's roof, banging on and drilling holes into the wall late at night, making threats toward them and driving past their new home, he pled guilty to harassment and to the intent to cause fear of violence. He also pled guilty to three charges of possessing a prohibited weapon and the charge of making an improvised explosive device. He pled not guilty to the remaining four charges. The neighbors were set to testify at his trial, as well as two survivors from his first murder spree. However, after the prosecutor consulted with the witnesses, it was decided to not proceed with four of the charges. A year later, the Birmingham Crown Court sentenced Barry Williams once again to a secure hospital indefinitely. His victim, Jill, was just a teenager when she lost her father, mother, and brother. At 53, she told the Express and Star, I've had nightmares about the man coming back to get me. Why was he allowed out to plan an identical atrocity? Now a judge has said that he will never get out again. I hope and pray that is true this time. Just a few months later after his sentencing, Barry's health declined, and on Christmas Eve he died at the age of 70. His victims could finally have peace on earth. 
Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of John Robinson. The internet opened up a whole new world for him. He placed ads looking for women, and over 15 years he lured eight women to their violent deaths. Then he sent letters to their families, pretending they were still alive. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fastening studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.